Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, David. And thank you for leading us to this point. Thank you for this opportunity. It's so good to see you all. I feel like one missed week is like forever, right? And I'm so glad to see you all this morning. Um, I am also glad for the opportunity to present God's Word to you. It is such a pleasure to prepare, to read God's Word, to spend time in prayer, and uh, this ministers to me when you give me the opportunity to bring God's Word to you. Um, Over the last few years, you may have received calls stating that the CRA has a warrant for your arrest, right? Or that you have a virus on your computer that needs to be fixed with an immediate payment or you risk losing your data. These scams are ways people prey on the vulnerable and unsuspecting. And there's a lot of money to be made. On November 12th, there was a New York Post. I know you don't like New York Post, but listen listen to this. There was a New York Post article about an 82-year-old grandmother in Florida who was defrauded out of more than $700,000 after receiving a phone call to bail out her granddaughter. In October this year... Eastern Ontario OPP published a statement that many elderly residents have been receiving phone calls to send $1,000 to $1,500 to bail out children or grandchildren arrested for impaired driving. On November 5th this month, the Upper Ottawa Valley OPP received a report about an individual that was asked to pay $9,000 to help facilitate a court process because his daughter had been involved with police and was custody. Frauds and scams are not things that happen to those people out there. They can happen to any one of us. Maybe some of us sitting here have been victims of such nefarious schemes. The most evil ones often seem like the most innocent ones and victimize the most sincere and loving people among us who are unaware of these schemes, much like taking candy from a baby. Just as there are many financial scams out there with innumerable victims and much loss, there are also many spiritual scams in the world today. Doctrines and ideologies that capture the most pious and sincere among us to dark and dangerous places. Falling victim to these spiritual scams have a significantly costlier impact on us because it jeopardizes not just this life, but also what we have in the life to come. So how can we avoid becoming victims, not in terms of financial scams, but in a much more serious realm, in a spiritual sense? What do we, Westmount Bible Chapel, do to ensure that we are wise about the cunning and crafty schemes that target the community of God's people? How does Westmount Bible Chapel avoid the things that keep us in a state of vulnerability and infancy, things that allow people to continue to try and defraud us spiritually? So today's sermon is titled, Like Taking Candy from a Baby. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16 to find out more. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. We have three points to consider today. Christ, the elders, and the saints. Christ, the elders or leaders of the church, and in this case it would be David, Jim, Gary, and Jason. And finally, 
the saints of the church, who are you and me. We've been considering God's grand plan in Ephesians. In chapter 1, we see that God is to be praised because he has a grand plan to set all things right in relation to Jesus Christ. This includes everything seen and unseen. Paul uses the phrase, heaven and on earth. What he means is that God is putting in order every angel and every demon, every planet and every pumpkin, every asteroid and every amoeba, and every human being in their rightful place under Christ. Everything will end up exactly as God designed, and to that end, every molecule is in motion towards that grand plan. Christ will be ruler over all things, and everything will have its due place, and the church is ground zero for this cosmic movement. In chapter 2, Paul describes God's rich grace and mercy exercised toward us sinners. We that are under the lordship of Christ have found ourselves in the church because of God's work in uniting us with Christ. And therefore, Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension are as though you and I died, were buried, rose from the dead, and now sit in his presence in heaven. This was amplified in the fact that Ephesian believers were a lot like us. They were Gentiles, those who had no connection with the covenants or the promises that God made to Israel. We were saved by the sacrifice of a Messiah that we never hoped in. We were brought near by the blood sacrifice that never even crossed the minds of our forefathers. And we have been made equal partners in God's family. Much more, Gentiles and Jews, believers, together access a new humanity, a new body that Christ made, Christ being the head and the church being his body. In chapter 3, Paul talks about the reason for his circumstance and models the reality of God's work in the ministry of the church. Paul tells us that in ministry, it is God who is the divine actor, and he enables and empowers us to glorify him in the church. So you, saint, are given grace and empowered for great things of cosmic impact. You may be weak, you may feel powerless, you may feel unrecognized and insignificant, but through your weakness, the divine actor, God himself, will manifest his power. And in the process, the Spirit of God is forming Christ in us as a community, conforming us to his image. As a result of this, we continue to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. And increasingly, we are together filled with the fullness of God and we show God's glory as we become his temple. That was a quick summary of the first three chapters. So Paul now moves on to chapter four. So over the next two sermons and Ephesians, we're going to talk about how his experience, Paul's experience, now ought to be the experience of each and every believer. He is going to talk about how believers should reflect the Godhead in the life of the church and how the ongoing transformation of each believer is seen in word and deed and thought. This is so that we can manifest the life of God and we can manifest God's grand plan, which is to subject all things to the authority of Christ. And that's going to have to be seen in our lives. So let's look at our first point. And our first point is Christ. 
As we consider chapter 4, I want to draw your attention to verses 7 to 10 as we look at our first point, Christ, the head of the church. This is the biggest point. It's about 60 to 70% of the sermon. So we're going to rest here for a bit before we consider the elders and the saints. We might have an extra long sermon today because we have to make up for one last week. All right? So, <laughs> so let's read verse 7 to 10. <clears throat> but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, we saw that God had made Christ to be the head of the church. And this is important because it's from the head that the body gets its direction. It's from the head that the body gets an identity. So head is a metaphor to mean leader of the church and the source of all life. Christ as the leader is the one to whom the entire church belongs and moves and lives. The church isn't an organization or just a collection of people. The church is a spiritual organism that exists under the direction and nourishment of Christ the head. And it is this head, the sovereign leader and ruler, who gives gifts graciously to the church. What is this grace that Paul is talking about that is given? The grace is a gift that Paul is referring to, and we often think of the act of redemption when we think of grace, right? By grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. But over here, it focuses less on saving grace that redeems us, and more about the grace that sustains us and helps us grow as a church, the grace of God given to, given to believers. We see passages in Romans and 1 Corinthians that use a word like this. It's the word gift. This is a word used by Paul referring to spiritual gifts given to each believer to help with the effective functioning of the whole church. So what's the criteria by which God gives these gifts to people? Look at verse 7 and 8. And we're going to see in verse 11 later, you're going to see some phrases. According to the measure of Christ's giving, you're going to see he gave gifts. It is he who gave. Christ being the head means that he is the sovereign over the distribution of the gifts to all the members of the body. And so just like his redemptive work, this gift is not based on good works and merit. Nothing can be done to earn a better gift or a greater portion of a gift. Just like grace was given to Paul, the leastest of all the saints, to be the apostles to the Gentile, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, grace is given. And it's given by Christ's sovereign will. He decides the size of the portion. He decides the distribution of these gifts. And we will soon see these differences aren't given so that we'll have differences in our body or in the body of Christ, but it's given for the sole purpose of unity in the body and for the growth of the church in love. 
Paul continues in verse 8 with an excerpt from Psalm 68. Now the question arises, why does Paul talk about gift giving and then quote an Old Testament passage? Whenever we see an excerpt or quotation from the Old Testament, there's only one way we can understand what the author intends to do with it. We need to turn to the text and understand what it says. Now, don't turn to it. We don't have the time to have a second sermon, a sub-sermon in Psalm 68, which is the source of this quotation. So I recommend that you turn to it at home and validate what I say to you today. All right? The very writing of the Psalm by David was done by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. God inspiring every word of scripture. So even so, the quoting of this psalm by Paul was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. God inspiring every word of this letter. So the meaning of the text and the intention of the Holy Spirit ought to be consistent between both these texts. So Psalm 68 talks of the Lord coming to rescue his people. He is to be praised for his past acts of deliverance and provision for his people. It goes through some of the Old Testament story. After the Exodus, he walked in triumph before his people so that Sinai shook and the kings of the earth scattered. The Lord desired to dwell in Zion, so he moves from Sinai to his holy temple in Zion under Joshua and later under King David. And he ascends on high, leading captives in his train. And this military language talks about the conquest of the Lord and him sharing his spoils with his own people. But what are the spoils that he shares? What are the gifts that he's taken and the gifts that he's shared? How does Paul see fulfillment of this psalms in the Lord Jesus Christ? In Numbers 8 and Numbers 18, God says that he has taken the Levites and given them to the Israelites as a gift to the Lord, to the service of gift for the Lord, to the service of the tabernacle for the congregation. So when you read Psalm 68 in light of Numbers 8 and Numbers 18, we see that the captives, who are the rebellious ones, are then captured and used as beneficial gifts to lead the covenant people of God in worship. Paul sees that the victorious Lord, the Elohim of Psalm 68, is none other than Jesus Christ. The ascension to Zion is fulfilled, in a sense, in his ascension to the heavenly places, And by his sovereign plan, he has captured people as his captives. Not to make them prisoners of war, but to make them useful gifts for the benefit of his people in worship and exaltation in his holy temple. The purpose of this ascension is that he might be exalted to the place of highest supremacy. That is, that Christ may fill all things. And we're going to read this in verse 10. So if you remember chapter 1, you'll remember the phrase, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word fill in chapter 1 with regards to the Father, in chapter 4 with regards to the Son, and later we're going to see in chapter 5 with regards to the Spirit, are all references to the sovereign rule of God. And in this passage, Paul says that just as he descended, Christ descended onto the earth, led to the defeat of death, sin, and Satan, his ascent has led to his sovereign rule over the universe, by which he gifts people to his covenant community by his sovereign will and grace. This exalted and glorious ascent will not only give confidence with regards to gifting, but much more when we hit chapter 6, we're going to come across spiritual battles. 
And Christ's victorious ascent provides confidence both to the original readers and it's going to give confidence to us when we read chapter 6. So here God unfolds his comprehensive plan, his grand plan for the universe, a universe subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So what's God's goal for each of us under the sovereign headship of Christ? What does God desire from us? Let's now turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten the first part of the chapter. Right? So chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul starts in verse 1 with the word, therefore. Therefore draws from the previous chapter, chapter 3. But on a much grander scheme, it draws from chapter 1 to 3. And since Paul has found himself a prisoner of the Lord Jesus, who is the sovereign ruler of the universe, the one unfolding his plan for all the universe, for all eternity, since he is given, Paul is given the stewardship of opening the eyes of the Gentiles and directing us to conform to the image of Christ, Paul says that these Ephesian believers, you and I, Gentiles, also need to walk worthy of our calling. We saw that the word walk doesn't literally mean walking, but rather what the Old Testament calls walking, our manner of life. In chapter 2, we walked according to the course of this world, and God redeemed us so that we could walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand. So here Paul says that our manner of life should be worthy of our calling. We saw that the word calling also occurs in chapter 1, where Paul says that believing Gentile hearts would be able to understand the hope to which they and we have been called. When Paul says that these believers ought to walk worthy of a calling, he presses them and us toward a standard of living that reflects the privilege and responsibility of a life that continuously responds to God's gracious initiative in redemptive history. God is working out his grand plan, and because of that, he has called people out to live under the lordship of Christ. And with this calling comes the blessing and privileges from the heavenly places. And this calling demands a continuous response, an appropriate lifestyle that corresponds with the calling of a new humanity, a new temple, a new body. What kind of behavior does he think is appropriate for our calling? In verse 2, he says that this life is characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. Humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. All these things are what we need when we deal with people that bring the worst out of us. Right? Paul is not naive about the reality of relationships in the church. He realizes that redeemed people are not necessarily easy to live with. These four characteristics of humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance all escalate towards the goal of preserving unity. 
Humility and lowliness in Greek literature was seen as derogatory terms. They were for the weak and servile and shameful in society. However, in the Old Testament, those who are lowly and humble are exalted by the Lord. The poor and lowly trust the Lord, but the Lord brings down the proud and arrogant. The gospel speaks of the one that serves being the greatest in the kingdom and lowliness being one of the highest virtues that characterizes a kingdom citizen. Paul conducts himself among the Ephesians with great humility. He says that in Acts chapter 20 and submits to other Christians in Colossians. The Lord himself invited people to come to him because he is meek and lowly in heart. Now, gentleness is not to be confused with weakness. Gentleness is the consideration of others. It is a willingness to waive my own rights. Long-suffering is God's character toward his people. He's patient with us so that we will not be destroyed. Patience gives allowance for others' shortcomings and endurance. And sorry, gives allowance for others' shortcoming and endures wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. And all these characters flow out of the character of the Lord who has called us. In Exodus, God reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so this Lord demands that the people that he has called would live worthy of that calling, striving for unity. These are the graces given by the head to the body to live in loving unity with one another. Remember how in chapter 3, Paul prayed that the readers would be rooted and grounded in love? He now commands them to do so by making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We might ask Paul, but Paul... I thought this unity was created by the death of the Messiah. Didn't he unite Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity? What do you mean by asking us to maintain the unity of the Spirit? And Paul would say, the unity that we are talking about is exactly the same unity that Christ achieved through his sacrificial death on the cross. And this is the unity that God intends to bring on the whole universe that submits to his will. Since the church is ground zero of those that submit to Christ's will, the church is also the masterpiece or workmanship of this unity to the universe. So a command to maintain the unity is not a command to achieve the unity, but a command to live according to God's purpose for the entire universe. Live according to God's grand plan. And so to do so, the church needs to visibly maintain this unity so that it will be seen by other humans and the spiritual forces that are looking at God's work in the church. If we don't live in this unity, we are saying that Christ's death has has no real consequences for our life individually or in community. His sacrificial death that unites us with God and with one another doesn't have any real meaning. Therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to live out in Westmount Bible Chapel what God's grand plan is for the universe. Much more, every reader and every listener, every believer, ought to heed this apostolic command. 
That is, we are to bend every effort to maintain unity in our church and with other believers because Christ's death has won this and God's plan will be increasingly evident in our life. What are some of the hindrances to unity in our church today? What kind of selfish motives could we be harboring that could prevent us from exercising gentleness, patience, humility, and loving forbearance toward one another? In this season, it could be regarding how our brothers and sisters conduct themselves in a pandemic. Could we perhaps think of doctrinal differences causing tensions in unity? Unity in the church is the goal of Christ's headship. But just because this unity is to be strived for with humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance doesn't mean that unity can be had at any price. Unity at the cost of fundamental truths to the gospel is not unity of the Spirit. Unity that agrees to live in disobedience to the Lord is not unity that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So Paul continues in verse 4 to talk about the nature of this unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear the word that echoes repeatedly? The word one? The seven ones in this verse are the fundamental unities that our Christian life is based on. Paul expertly uses the number seven and three here to show the completeness of the unity and the involvement of the triune God. There are three groups of unity, one spirit, one Lord, and one God, to show the triune God is inseparable from the foundation of the Christian faith. The one body is the local congregation, and the one spirit brings unity and cohesion into each of our local assemblies and churches. There is one invisible church, yes, but each local church is meant to be a full expression of that universal entity. And each one of us have been made members of the body by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is this one body and one spirit that mandates that we live our life according to the one hope of our calling. This hope that we have been called to practically changes everything about our dynamics with one another. It is hope that helps us be gentle, It is hope that allows us to be patient with one another. It is hope that allows us to be humble. It is hope that helps with putting up with each other. The everyday reality of our hope is that we constantly exercise our patience and humility in this community. This community where God is chiseling and fitting us together, this community is how God is manifesting his manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realm. It is in this community that pardoned rebels, former strangers, are brought together to demonstrate the work of God in subjecting all things under the feet of the Lord Jesus. Remember, brothers and sisters, that when we exercise these graces, we are bound by peace to keep unity. We are living in the hope of our calling. And the constant expectancy, and this is what David had talked about early, the constant expectancy of the fulfillment of the hope should press us onto unity and love in this community. The hope that we have been called to. One Lord, one faith, one baptism refers to our relationship with God the Son. It is the fact that we have one master 
the same Yahweh of the Old Testament is now the master of co-equal Gentile and Jewish believers. How did we enter this experience? It was through the one faith and one baptism. Our one faith talks about the content of our faith, not necessarily the act of believing in Christ. We are united under the Lordship of Christ as we submit to the apostolic doctrine, the faith handed once and for all down to the saints by the apostles who were taught by the Lord. The church has always seen that the teaching of the apostles was the Lord himself taught us. And so we continue to preach and teach the faith continuously in our foundations class, the blueprints class, our Women of Westmount meetings, and Westmount Bible Institute. Unity in lordship requires believing in the one faith, and it also requires being baptized into the one baptism. This one baptism is what we often talk about at the Lord's Supper, an experience of the Spirit and water baptism. To be baptized in the Spirit, but not to be baptized by water, has always been an anomaly in church history, an anomaly that we have been making the norm. But the apostles and the disciples didn't preach a spiritual union with Christ disconnected from water baptism, nor did they preach a water baptism disconnected from a spiritual union with Christ. To endeavor in unity under one Lord, the church is united in the one faith, and they are united in the one baptism, which unites us with the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, the climax speaks of God the Father speaks of the fact that the believing Jews and Gentiles believe in one God, one God that spans both testaments, and he is the father of every human family on earth. This speaks to the fact that the father of all is taking people from every family on the earth and uniting them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God, the father of all, does not have a local agenda and local program alone. His plan is cosmic. It spans every human family that fills the earth. This gathering on Clonsilla Avenue with a diversity of people is an outpost of this unifying work of God, pointing toward his final goal for the universe in Christ. It is over this diverse group, united by the Spirit, by the plan of God the Father, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that God is appointed Christ as head. Christ is the head of the church, He gives gifts to his body so that it will be united in love. This is so that, according to verse 10, Christ might fill all things. So now let us look at how Christ sets out to accomplish the goal of filling all things. Let's look at our second point, the elders. As we consider our second point, I want us to reflect on what we just saw in Ephesians 4.4. Paul talks to his readers and addresses them as you in plural. And then in Ephesians 4, 7, he says that grace was given to each one of us. Do you notice the change in pronoun? The us and the y'alls. He talks about a group of us that were given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now hold that thought. We also saw in Ephesians 4, 8, in light of Psalm 68 and Numbers 8 and Numbers 18, that the captives and the gifts are people that God has taken and then gifted to his covenant people as leaders in temple worship and community. People who would lead the congregation in true worship of the Lord according to the instruction of the Lord. So then, what does Paul mean when he talks about gifts given by the head to the body, gifts given by the victorious Christ to these men? 
Let's read Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the, working, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We see that Christ supplies his people with certain gifts and graces to foster growth and perfection in the church. When we read about gifts, we often think of gifts as spiritual gifts mentioned in Romans and 1 Corinthians. But here in Ephesians, we read of a supply of people. Just like God gifted the Levites as a set-apart people for leading the people of God in the temple, in the same way, Christ supplies the leaders of the church, the elders, to help the people of God function and develop as they should. The us that were given grace, in verse 7, are the grace-gifted leaders of the church given to the church as part of the victorious ascension of Jesus Christ. In the list of five, the apostles and prophets, also all five of these are elders given to the church, but in the list of five, the apostles and prophets have been mentioned for a third time in Ephesians. So we saw them in chapter 2, that the church was built on the foundation or teaching of the apostles and prophets. We then saw in chapter 3 that the mystery has been revealed in this present age through the writings of the apostles and prophets. The evangelists, pastors, and teachers were still in ministry during the time of the apostles, and they aren't replacements of apostles and prophets. Instead, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers continue today, even though the ministries of apostles and prophets ended in the first century. The evangelist, pastor, and teachers are the different kinds of elders that exist in, existed in the early church and exist in our church today. Evangelists are only mentioned twice. Philip was an evangelist, and Paul exhorted Timothy to perform the work of an evangelist. The evangelist is an elder that is gifted to preach the gospel inside and outside the church. That is, they preach Christ's message of the kingdom and of salvation. Pastors or shepherds are those that lead the people of God and care for the flock of God. This includes ministering to troubled saints, exhorting and comforting believers, and correcting wayward sheep to bring them back to the fold. A teacher is one that authoritatively declares the word of God, making moral declarations from God's word about right belief and right living. When we see these words, the first thing that comes to mind might either be, oh wow, the elders have a lot of work to do, right? Or, good, That's why the pastor gets paid to do that work. However, when we read verse 12, we realize that these gifts aren't given to the church so that the church can receive services like at a restaurant, at a theater, or a spa. These captives aren't given to the church to serve the church by themselves. Verse 12 says that these men are gifted to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The elders of the church are facilitators. The pastors, teachers, and evangelists of this church, David, Jim, Gary, and Jason, are given to the church so they can prepare the saints, you and I, to minister. So we see that every believer is engaged in the work of ministry. Every believer edifies, and it isn't just that these men gifted to the church need to bear the work of the ministry to the church. Someone missing today? It isn't the elder's job to send them a text or call to find out what's going on. It just isn't just the elder's job to do that. Discipleship and evangelism, not just the job of the elders. 
Training your family, your spouse, and your kids in the way of the Lord? Not just the job of the elders. Confronting brothers and sisters about sin or calling to encourage them to press on? Not just the job of the elders. The elders are given to the church so that each one of us can minister to one another as they, as they prepare us and equip us to do so. Therefore, in our Wednesday session, remember Jason talked about how counseling is the job of every member. I would extend that to say correction is the job of every member. Encouragement and prayer are the jobs of every member. Evangelism and discipleship are the job of every member. The grace-given gifts to the church do not find their fulfillment, that is the elders, don't find their fulfillment in their own existence, but in the activity of preparing others to minister. The elders are given so that they will make God's people fully qualified to serve one another. If Christ is the head of the church, the elders are the equippers or facilitators for the members of the body to minister to one another. You might be wondering, 40 minutes later, how any of this has anything to do with taking candy from a baby. We will find our answer when we ask the question about the purpose what the purpose is for elders to prepare and equip members to serve one another. Let's read verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul says that the continuous equipping of the saints and the continuous ministering to one another by the saints is so that they may reach a goal And we must continue until the whole local church arrives at this state or at this goal. Christian growth and progress do not happen in isolation. Hence, he says, until we all, you see the phrase, collectively are on the way to this goal. What is this goal? There are three parts to it. The first is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Remember the unity of the spirit that we are commanded to maintain? This is now speaking of the same unity, but as a goal that we must attain. The unity is both something that the Spirit has accomplished, but something that we are all striving for collectively until Christ returns. The faith has been given, but we strive toward a unity of the faith as we continue to study and train in community so that we all, in every aspect of our life, appropriate together all that is included in the faith that has been handed to us. The second is the attaining of maturity. The growth from a baby to an adult may be seen in size, but qualitatively, the growth is maturity. What changes us from babies who have our candy taken away to adults that don't fall for schemes? Maturity. And this isn't talking about spiritual perfection. It isn't talking about flawlessness. This is talking about maturity and stability in contrast to unstable children. The third is the fullness of the maturity, which is the standard of the glorified Christ. The church is filled with the fullness of Christ, and Paul prays that his readers be filled with the fullness of God, which we saw was the rule and sovereignty of God. The goal of maturity is that Christ's rule will be established in every aspect of the life of every member of the local church. And until that happens the elders and saints continue to minister with this goal and purpose. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
Paul reinforces what he says with verse 14. If He says that if genuine progress is to be made, immaturity and instability must be put aside so that together as a church we can resist any forces that might corrupt or destroy it. Picture the child, the unstable, lacking in direction, open to manipulation believer who is tossed around like a rudderless boat that gets pushed around by every fresh wind of teaching or false doctrine. The immature believer falls easy prey to new theological fads, and much more now in the age of Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Paul has graphic language for the preachers of these new theologies. Crafty and deceitful, cunning humans. The Greek word for crafty can be connected to the Hebrew word arum, which is used for the serpent in the garden. It is also used for the cunning serpent mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11. These are humans who are backed by Satan himself, empowered by Satan, seeking to deceive and lead the unstable astray. These evil men and women pursue and scheme to lure immature believers, ones who are not grounded on the one faith or apostolic doctrine, and this luring produces error. The ultimate ways in which believers are defrauded today are not by CRA calls or IT scammers, but by the agents of Satan leading them astray by cunning. Therefore, it is important to be part of a church that is grounded in God's word, being served by grace-given elders who has been given to us by a victorious and ascended Christ to equip the saints to leave behind all immaturity and instability, No longer should a false teacher ever think that luring away a member of Westmount Bible Chapel is like taking candy from a baby. Now, I don't want to lay the guilt trip here, but I'm going to say this, and you can do with it as you please. You know the demands on your life and what you can and cannot prioritize prioritize as a family. But if you can and you do not choose to prioritize every opportunity to be equipped and to be made mature in the faith handed down to the saints... You are fooling yourselves into thinking that you are immune to the cunning cunning deceit of Satan and his cronies. The craftiness of the devil is that all his works appear good, decent, pure, and right. And it is only together that we can grow and mature and move away from immaturity and spiritual naivete. Do not be fooled into thinking you can do this on your own, in your bedroom, with your Bible, and the internet. We saw that Christ is the head that gifts his body with the goal that believers continue in loving unity. The elders are gifted to the church as equippers with the goal that the church moves to maturity of a man and no longer continues as children. What about you and me? What part do we play in the body of Christ? If Christ and we're going to move to our third point, saints. If Christ is the head and the elders are equippers, then the saints are bodybuilders. Let's look at chapter 4 and verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
We already saw in verse 12 that the elders of the church facilitate the equipping of each member for ministry so that we can build up the body of Christ. In verse 16, Paul says that Christ is the source from which the entire body finds nourishment, unity, and progress. He is the necessary requirement for the church. A church that is a church that is Christless is a dead church. A church that is Christless is a headless church. And if Christ is not her source and leader, that church is dead. But when Christ nourishes and unifies a church, Paul says that she is not shapeless, but ordered and framed, joined and held together by every joint. Here the focus of each believer is not themselves, but the maturity of the entire church. Christ empowers every one of us to be fully involved in the process of building of the church. He says that the body is held together by every joint or ligament. The joint or ligament refers to the elders of the church who supply and support all the other parts of the body working together. Not so that each part does the same thing, but that each part does its own work, working properly. So as we depend on one another's giftedness, the fullness of God and the fullness of Christ, we will see even the fullness of the Spirit will be experienced by the community. As saints building the body of Christ, what is the end goal of this body building? Let's read verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The goal of bodybuilding is that we might grow up into Christ the head. This growth will occur as we speak the truth in love. And this is contrasted with the cunning and crafty speech of men and women who try to lead believers into error. Instead, we need to be a gospel-confessing and testifying church, speaking the truth of the faith. Remember in Ephesians 1 verse 13, they heard, we heard, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation? Paul isn't emphasizing that our speech should be truthful. This is needed, yes. But the true speech is the gospel. This is the only speech that can be guaranteed by God to help the body grow towards Christ. We will see in chapter 6 that this speech, the belt of truth, is what will help the church resist the attacks of the evil one. Speaking the truth in love is also contrasted with the cunning and crafty ways in which false teachers speak. We're going to see this in the chapters ahead, how the community of faith can walk in love and let the love of God be established in our community. Speaking the truth of the gospel should not be dissociated from love or should not be spoken at the expense of love at the same same time. Love cannot be embodied in our community apart from the truth of the gospel. So the growth we experience toward our head is in truth, in unity, in faith, in knowledge, and especially in love. That is, as we exercise our gifts, we are to help the church grow to be more and more like the Lord, fully and completely incorporated into him. That is, our goal should be that Christ rules and governs over Westmount Bible Chapel, and this community looks more and more like Christ. If the body builds itself up in love, 
love becomes the criterion for assessing a church's true growth. Even the most spiritually gifted church has no spiritual value without love. This unity in diversity, constantly growing in maturity until we meet our Lord. This is how we are to be protected from being defrauded as a community and established on the solid truth of the faith. Christ is the head, the gift giver, the goal of which is unity and love. The elders are the facilitators, the equippers of the body, the goal of which is maturity and love. The saints, you and I, are bodybuilders, ministering to one another according to the equipping by the elders. And the goal is growing to look more like Christ as love characterizes our community. I think we know what the application is by now. How do we avoid being spiritually defrauded as a church in the weeks ahead? This week, seek to use your gifts in the church. You are part of this body, a member, and exercising your gifts in this church in love will help strengthen and mature the church to make us look more like Christ. If you don't have an opportunity to minister to this body, speak with the elders, David, Jim, Gary, and Jason. They are Christ's gift to you to help you exercise your gifts in this church so that all of us in love be filled with the fullness of Christ and be mature. No longer children, no longer tossed around with every wind of doctrine. The only way we can avoid being led astray is if we are equipped and build one another up in the faith, confessing the truth of the gospel in love. Father, we are grateful for this day. We are grateful for your plan And not just for your plan, but the fact that you have co-opted us to be partners with you in this plan. We thank you that we are not alone, aimlessly looking around, wondering how we will fulfill our part in such a grand plan. But you, by your grace, have filled us with the fullness of God. Continue to fill us with the fullness of Christ, uniting us with the head through your spirit, giving us gifts to facilitate, to equip, to build us up, to do your will, so that one another, so that with one another, Lord, we will be able to build one another up, encourage one another up, establish one another up, to look more and more like you, so that together as a body, we can grow to our head, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the world looks on, as the principalities and powers and rulers and authorities look on, may Westmount Bible Chapel look a lot like your grand plan. May each of the members here appropriate the truth of the gospel, the fullness of Christ, into our lives. When no one's looking, Lord, may your gospel be demonstrated. When everyone is watching, may your gospel be demonstrated. May humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance be the graces that characterize our community so that in love we will keep the bonds of peace. We are grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's precious name. Amen.